Good morning, church family. Today's scripture reading is Book of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 1 to 19. If you are using the Bible on the pill, it's on page 1388. After Jesus had finished <clears throat> instructing his 12 disciples, he went down from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive the sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and the violent people have been raiding it. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Whoever has ears, let them hear. To what can, <clears throat> to what can I compare these generations? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, but wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Well, friends, good to see you this morning, and thanks for putting up with all the technological difficulties. Isn't it fun? Isn't technology wonderful? Uh, yes. Okay, keep your Bibles open there. Friends, I want you to have Matthew 11 open in front of you, and we're going to work our way through that text this morning. But as we always do, I'm going to pray for us that God might help us to focus on his word and hear him speak. Let's pray. Father, we know that listening to you is serious business. Uh, Father, we hear even in this part of your word how important it is to listen. And so, Father, right now we ask that by your spirit you would be at work in us, helping us to hear you speak. Father, please open our ears, open our hearts to your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've ever gone out for dinner and you kind of completely misread the dress code right so you went out dressed in t-shirt and jeans and you realized this was an evening gowns and dinner suits kind of events 
Or, as happened to one of my friends, uh, he was holding a costume party. And so he was deciding for his birthday he would have this big costume party, party. But later, he changed his mind. And so he contacted the guests to tell them not to worry about a costume. Probably wasn't going to work out. Just come as you are. That's fine. He told everyone, except for this one girl, uh, who came dressed up as an angel. And she didn't come just, you know, the last minute kind of, I've got to get a costume on. She went the whole nine yards. It was the best angel costume I've ever seen. And I remember her face as she walks around into the backyard and nobody else is dressed in a costume. I saw her go through the six stages of grief, or however many there are, shock, embarrassment, anger, frustration that he hadn't told her. Having the wrong expectations, well, that's trouble, isn't it? But there are some areas of life where it is, it's just a much bigger problem. It's a more significant problem. In some areas of life, if you have the wrong expectations, there's just more at stake. When we have the wrong expectations of what God is doing in the world or who God is meant to be or what Jesus is meant to be like, when our spiritual expectations are wrong, that is, it's a much bigger deal because that can lead to disaster. I wonder if you've ever heard of uh, this little moment in history called the Great Disappointment. Ever heard of it? It was this time from American history back in the 1840s in the United States uh, where they had this preacher named George Miller and he preached that if you read the book of Daniel a particular way and you kind of tilted your head to the left a little bit, you could see that the Bible was teaching that Jesus would return and set up his kingdom on the 2nd of October, 1844. And he convinced lots of people that this was about to happen. He gave many people this expectation that Jesus was about to come back. Uh, I want you to imagine this scene, right? 50,000 people standing in a field somewhere in Pennsylvania, dressed in white, staring up at the sky, just waiting for Jesus to return on October the 2nd, 1844. And they waited and they waited. And in case you haven't noticed, Jesus didn't return that day. And as the shadows grew long, apparently there was this one guy close to the front who in a very loud voice said, well, I didn't think it was going to happen anyway, and they all packed up and went home. It's a much bigger deal to have the wrong expectations of God and what he will do and how he will act in this world. I think this passage is about wrong expectations. I think the people in this text have all these expectations about Jesus and his kingdom and what Jesus could or should be doing. And Jesus hits these expectations head on. I want to show you. First, Jesus is not the Messiah they were expecting. That's the first wrong expectation. Uh, you see, in the first century, there were many expectations of what the Messiah would be. They really were hoping for, for someone who would be a kind of um, military leader, a fighter, Some would, someone who would bring all of their political hopes and goals to reality, uh, something of a cross between Captain America and Peter Dutton. Uh, the Messiah would... Okay, some of you are awake. That's good. I'm glad to see. The Messiah would forcefully come and bring in... The kingdom of God. That's what a lot of them were hoping for. That's not quite, I don't think, what John the Baptist was expecting. Uh, John, we've actually already met in Matthew's go gospel. 
he uh, baptized Jesus in the River Jordan. And he had this expectation of a Messiah who was a powerful Messiah, yes, but a holy man. One who would bring righteousness again. One who would bring judgment on evildoers. So if we were to go back to Matthew chapter 3, this is what John says of the coming Messiah, of Jesus. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burying up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Can you hear the notes of judgment there? Uh, that whole winnowing fork thing, that is a picture of the judgment of God. Uh, a winnowing fork is this big fork that you had. It's this bit of equipment that you have to throw wheat that you've harvested into the air so that the grassy bit floats off and away and the heavier grain falls to the ground. And the idea here for John is that, man, when the Messiah comes, he's really going to separate the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous, He's going to bring justice, judgment, finally. That's what John has been hoping for. But now, John the Baptist finds himself in prison. I mean, foolishly or otherwise, John the Baptist spoke out against King Herod and this adulterous and incestuous marriage he was in. He puts himself on the line and he pays the price for cheesing off the king. And while he's there in prison, he hears of what, well, this supposed Messiah Jesus was doing. And it wasn't quite what he's been expecting. Do you remember what Jesus has been doing? We just heard a little bit of it in the kids' talk. Jesus has been going around healing people. I guess that's okay, healing people, that's fine. But do you remember the kind of people Jesus has been healing? He healed the servant of a Gentile Roman soldier. No overthrow of the government there, is there? I mean, this guy's not even a Jew and Jesus has healed him. Also, he's been going around gathering this ragtag bunch of people to follow him and we have seen that they're not always people from the right side of the tracks. He's got a tax collector. A tax collector. A sharp intake of breath there. Surprise. What's he doing with a tax collector? So John sends this message to Jesus in chapter 11, verse 2. Are you the one? Right? Or, or should we be expecting someone else? Are you it? I was expecting something more. Now, I don't think this is quite Obi-Wan Kenobi saying to Anakin Skywalker, you were supposed to be the chosen one. It's not quite that level. But John here is clearly confused and disappointed he was expecting someone who would shake things up I mean he was there when Jesus was baptized he remembers how glorious that moment was but now he finds himself in prison no outbreak of revival no justice and he's just not so sure so he sends a messenger to Jesus and um, Jesus response I think is to gently correct John's misguided expectations. I think that's what verses 4 and 5 are about. Read it with me, verse 4 and 5. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. 
Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Now, what is Jesus getting at with those few verses? Is he saying, hey, look at the miracles. Pretty good evidence, pretty good reason for thinking that I'm the Messiah. Yeah, well, I think he's probably doing that in part. But I think there's more to it than that. If you know your Old Testament, and John surely does, you would know that Jesus has just quoted from the prophet Isaiah. He's actually quoted two passages from the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 61, passages where the prophet looks forward to the time when God might return and put all things right. And when you read both of those texts, you realise that what Jesus is saying is he's reminding John that what the prophets have been looking forward to is a time where there is both justice, yes, but mercy. Judgment, but restoration. Uh, Listen, for example, with me to Isaiah 35. This is what Isaiah 35 says. Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. I wonder if you can hear just even in that Isaiah 35 passage, there's a bit of both. There's judgment, yes, but there's also mercy and joy and restoration. And if we were to go to the other text, Isaiah 61, we'd see the same thing. You see, I think what Jesus is doing here is he is broadening John's expectations of the kingdom and what it was meant to be. And he's saying, John, 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 remember, there is judgment, there is justice that comes. But there's also meant to be healing for the blind and the deaf and the lame. John here needs to bring his expectations of the kingdom in line with the king. Now, let me say this morning, I think there's a really helpful warning in this text um, because I think we can try and think about the kingdom in a way where we focus on one aspect of what Jesus has come to do and kind of just politely ignore the rest of what it says. We can read God's word and hear in it only those parts about Jesus and his kingdom that we really like hearing and filter out those bits that we're not as up for. And just like John, let me suggest, I think that sets us up for disappointment and confusion. Uh, When I was a lad, for example, right? When I was a lad, I felt like every youth camp I went on had a theme verse. Uh, I wonder if you went on a youth camp like this. It was a verse taken from the Gospel of John, and the verse was this, I have come so that you might have life and have it to the full. You've heard that verse before? Every youth camp I ever went on, that was the theme verse. And pretty much the way it went was the leaders would say, okay, that's our verse, and that means it's good for us to go surfing. Yay, surfing. Right? That was the way that it worked. Uh, By the way, I'm not sure it's a great proof text for surfing, but there you go. However, that's not everything that Jesus says about his kingdom and what it is to be in his kingdom. Jesus' kingdom actually is one also where... You take up the cross to follow him. Um, Actually, this is Jesus from chapter 10, from one chapter before this one. He says this, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. 
and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Part of being in Jesus' kingdom means that we take up the cross and that will mean at times that we do what is difficult and costly and hard. Now my concern is whether we think that that is part of what it is to be a Christian. Is that part of our picture of what it is to follow Jesus? Or do we have limited and maybe wrong expectations of the kingdom? Friends, I want to ask another question for parents here this morning. Um, Do you teach your kids that as well? Do you teach them the full gamut of what it is to be in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus and to follow him? Do you teach them that following Jesus means taking up your cross? Because it would be sad if we don't teach them everything and we set them up for, well, disappointment, for the wrong expectations of what it is to follow him. Let me say, I think it's a really easy trap to fall into what John does here, to reduce the kingdom to the bits that we like. And Jesus gently here, I think, says, John, 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 open your vision. Get the full picture of what it is. Now, friends, there's Jesus. He is the unexpected Messiah. I think there's another false expectation that Jesus uncovers in this text. Because in this passage, Jesus speaks in unexpected ways about judgment. Now, from verse 7, you'll notice that he addresses the crowds, the hangers-on. These are people who aren't really against Jesus, but they also aren't really on team Jesus either. And Jesus speaks to them about judgment in a way that I think would have confounded them. They would have found it incredibly unexpected. You see, they were, as we've just heard a little bit, they were expecting God's judgment to come with the Messiah. And they knew that it would come one day for really, really bad people. They would get it. But Jesus says something incredibly unexpected in this text about judgment. He says that judgment comes much closer to home. I want you to follow the logic of the text with me. Come to verse 7. He confronts the crowd. He asks them, firstly, who do you think John the Baptist is? What do you think he was? Verse 7, was he a reed swayed in the wind? Was John someone who would bend to the changing tastes of public opinion? No. Was John one of the king's cronies? He was there in the king's court wearing fancy clothes? No, that wasn't John. What was John? Verse 9, was he a prophet? Yes, but something more than a prophet. Jesus says this, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. John is, well, he's very important. Jesus, you see here, is tapping into Old Testament expectations from the prophets about how before God would return to judge and to restore, there would be a messenger who must come to prepare the way. A prophet, yes, but one greater than the prophet. One who has the special task of preparing God's people, the people of Israel, for Yahweh's coming. Now that idea is picked up in the prophet Malachi. He speaks of one who will come to prepare the way for the Lord and he's going to be like Elijah, one of Israel's greatest prophets. And Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, verse 14, by the way guys, that's who John is. He's the Elijah who was to come. He's the advanced man for the Messiah. 
He comes to get things ready and prepare the way. Um, now, I think what Jesus is doing here with the crowd is he's asking them to play connect the dots. Right? He's saying to them, okay, guys, if John is that guy, if he's the Elijah who was to come, if he's the messenger who prepares the way, then that means that I am anyone, anyone. But the crowd have missed it. They've missed who John was and they miss who Jesus is. And I think in the next few verses, you hear this, oh, I think there's a little bit of frustration in Jesus' voice. Verse 16, to what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Uh, This generation, Jesus said, they're like the kids who hang out at the local 7-Eleven looking for trouble. This generation is one that looks for entertainment, for excitement, but they're not satisfied. Verse 18, for John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say here is a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Do you hear how unsatisfied they are? They've had it all. They've had the prophet and Jesus the party animal. They've had the Baptist and they've had the Messiah and they're not satisfied with anything. And they are missing what God is doing right in front of their very eyes. Now, with all of this, Jesus doesn't just sigh and say, oh, well, kids these days, you know. No, actually, Jesus says this is really serious. And I think he gives them a very unexpected warning. Verse 20, glance there with me. It's connected to the the passage just before. He talks to this crowd who've come maybe from the towns around, and listen to what he says. Woe to you, Chorazin. It's one of the towns. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. Tyre and Sidon, by the way, are these great Gentile cities filled with, in the Jewish mind, terrible Gentile sinners. So for Jesus to say this, this would have been incredibly unexpected. Jesus turns to this crowd and he says, you know what, guys, it is going to be more bearable for them on the day of judgment. Because if they just got a little bit of what you received, they would have repented. Now, I think this crowd would have been very happy for Jesus to call down judgment and to fulfill the role of a Messiah on those terrible Gentile sinners. They just weren't expecting him to turn the cannons on them. Now, friends, let me just ask you, how are you feeling about that? Jesus saying, hey, if you reject me, there is trouble. I think today, in our day and age, we find this incredibly shocking. We still find Jesus unexpected. Because Jesus says, judgment comes on those who ignore the king. Judgment comes on those who ignore the kingdom. In our day and age, I think that is a pretty untrendy thing to say, don't you think? Now, in every culture, including our own, there is a hierarchy of evil, you know, a list of sins where we might mentally think that these sins, the ones up the very top, are really, really significant sins. In our culture, we might start up the top with murder, right? Something like that, wouldn't we? And then we put other violent crime up there. You can imagine the kind I'm thinking about. Then we work our way down to the middling sins. They're not as bad, you know, things like theft, white-collar crime, that kind of thing. 
And then you get down to the, the sins that are, well, they're sins, but they're just not that big a deal. They're still wrong. They're just not that important. So things like, for example, a person who, when you go to a Thai restaurant, they demand that everyone buys a dish and you're all forced to share. Right? Or someone who needlessly hits reply all on emails. Or maybe it's someone who uses both armrests on an aeroplane, that kind of thing. All those things are wrong, but maybe not a big deal. Okay, maybe I'm making that, uh, pushing that a bit harder than it should be. But you get my point, don't you, about the hierarchy of sins? Where do you think ignoring the Son of God fits in that hierarchy? Where does it fit? What Jesus says here is very uncomfortable. He says it's a very big sin. And he warns us here, he warns the crowd and us too, don't reject the Son of God. Heed the warning. Now today, I don't want you to get the wrong idea. I don't think that Jesus is condemning all doubt. He's not saying, if you have questions this morning, how incredibly terrible. Haven't we just seen John the Baptist, the super prophet, right, have a little kryptonite moment where he wavered and asked Jesus, are you really the one? But there's something different in John's earnest seeking and questions and the crowd's dissatisfaction and rejection. The crowd don't seek Jesus out. They willfully reject Jesus and say, you're not good enough for us. And so with all of that said, what Jesus says here, I think should make us stop and think. It is a very big deal to ignore Jesus. Friends, heed the warning. Now, as we've been going through Matthew's Gospel, maybe you are finding that Jesus is simply not what you were expecting. Jesus is all kinds of awkward when you want ni niceness. And that is Jesus. He so often doesn't give us what we're expecting. But friends, I want to remind you this morning, I need to remind you this morning of the greatest moment where Jesus went and did something that no one was expecting. It's called the cross. You see, in a couple of chapters' time, uh, Jesus will tell his disciples something that will be, well, confounding for them. It will confuse and upset them. He will say to them, I'm about to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the religious leaders so that just like John, I will suffer violence. And he says to them, I'm going to do that so that I might give my life as a ransom for you, a payment for wrongdoing. So unexpected. The king of the kingdom comes to die in our place and take the judgment we deserve so that we might be forgiven. Friends, I want to pray for us today that we might bow the knee to that king. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask and pray today that you might help us to unpick our expectations of you and your son. And help us, Father, to kneel at the foot of the unexpected Messiah, Jesus, and to receive his mercy. Father, we pray this in his name.